This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. That's an extraordinary bit of land there. It's like there's a wave of, of land above us that's just curling down over to, to join the sea here. The sea level has gone up and down and that's a raised beach there and you can see that it's just full of pebbles from the beach and really quite high above us. But the winter storms have actually also really undermined it and you've got grass falling down and, and there's a lot of erosion going on. I'm in Cumbria this week, not in the tourist hotspots of the central lakes or in the even the rolling greenness of the Eden Valley, but in a real gem, one of probably the hidden treasures of this part of the world. And I'm with Anne Lingard, who writes and who walks and leads guided walks along the Solway Firth. Well, it's a most amazing day, isn't it? I can't believe we've got blue sky and blue water. And I'm standing looking across to Scotland. And we've come on a day when there's one of the really good low tides, or the big tides, as they call them around here. Because the Solway has this fantastic tidal flow. It can be as much as 30 feet in a tide. So we've come for where we've got a really low tide. And we're going to go straight down, down the sand to the, the rocky scars at the bottom and see what we can find. But all around us we're looking across this amazing finger of sea we can see the the granite hill of Criffle we can see the mountains just of Galloway we can see Robin Rig which is the big wind turbine farm it's a great big offshore wind farm isn't it it's a huge forest isn't it forest of white wind turbines and then behind us of course we've got the Cumbrian coast and the nice thing is if you go across the Solway and to the Scottish side and look over to England then you see the sort of volcanoes the Lake District and the Solway Firth Mm -hmm. It's, it's, as you say, this finger of water, it kind of creeps in from the Irish Sea to... It's, it's the border between Scotland and yes, England, Yes, it does, it? absolutely. It, it divides the two countries, but it also, in a way, unites the two countries because, the, of course, fishing occurs on it from both sides. And it used to be possible. In fact, I think it still is possible to walk across it further up where it's in the muddy areas. If you know what <laughs> you you're know, doing. You know I don't think we'll try no, that no, today. No. Let's not do that today. <laughs> so, Anne, we're, we're out walking across the shingle here because you walks here looking for lost treasures, lost <laughs> What I want to do is to get people to they come down to the shore and see what's here. I grew up in Cornwall where there are wonderful coves and hills and uh, big cliffs. My husband got a job up in, in Cumbria and we drove up this coast and I thought, oh, it's so flat. But then I used to start coming down and walking the dogs and every time I came, whatever the weather, I found something new. And it, it really surprises people what they find. This is Allenby Bay that we're in. And Allenby Bay is actually proposed as one of the new Irish Sea Marine Conservation Zones. And the sands, as we look out over yes. them at the moment, towards the mountains in Scotland, they're, they're shining because yes. the tide's going out. And it's incredibly beautiful. It is. And when we get down there, we'll find that they're not as flat as they look from here, actually. We'll find some interesting things, I think, to talk about. Oh, come on, then. Let's go. <laughs> bird footprints, I love that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the great bird footprints and uh, 
I mean, they look like dinosaur footprints, don't they, they do. almost, in the sand? That's right. And the, the nice thing is, if you really keep looking at the sand, particularly at the bottom of the pools, you find all kinds of amazing little footprints of things like ragworms and, and snails. We'll probably find some winkle trails in a minute. And sometimes you see where there have been little hermit crabs scurrying around. But you have to know what you're looking for. You have to you? know what because you're I would for. probably look in there and yes. think there's just a few little bits of scraping over the bottom. But you, for you, it tells a whole new story, That's doesn't right. it? Now, this rock we've just passed here, very insignificant-looking little rock in the sand. But if you look at it, it's covered in barnacles. It's also got four dog whelks on it, and there's a winkle on it, and they're all sitting there. And it's because a lot of these animals on the shore really have to find a hard substratum to live on. And the barnacles, of course, are permanently attached to the rock. And when the tide comes in, can you see there's like a little kite-shaped mark on top of them? There is, yeah. And when the tide comes in, that is like a little trapdoor, and it opens. And they put their legs out, which have got fine hairs on, and they, they filter particles out of the sea. Now, the dog whelks, they're incredibly predatory. If I lift it up, you can just see its foot in there. We can just see the sort just of see pale, a white foot. slimy, fleshy bit, can't we? That's right, and it's now attracting its foot. But if it came right out and its head was there, you would see it had a long mouth part, a proboscis, which is just bores in to the barnacle or the muscle. And it also has a very um, acid secretion in its mouth so it sort of digests its way through the shell dissolves the shell bores in and apparently a dog whelk will sit on top of a mussel and, and eat it in about three days it sort of pushes digestive enzymes inside it and then slurps out the inside of the mussel so very often where you've got barnacles and mussels you'll see these dog whelks so even on that tiny little rock about six inches across we've got three different things to look at all with very different ways of, of living What are, what are these things ah, here? Well spotted. Now we're down into the really interesting area. This is what Allenby is famous for. This is what the locals call sand corals, but of course they're not corals at all. What we're looking at are great mounds of what in fact are tubes built by a worm called Sabellaria or the honeycomb worm. But they look like coral, don't they? They look, they look like, like a kind coral. of muddy That's brown right. coloured Let's coral. Let's go up closer and just have a look. Sticking up out of the water. If you look at them, you see that each of these is a tube. The worm has a tiny planktonic larva which floats around in the sea. Then it has to find a hard surface on the lower shore and it settles down, sticks itself down. And it starts with its tentacles selecting sand grains of a particular size. And if you look at these, you can see that the tubes are beautifully constructed of little sand grains. The worm will be down inside that. But when the tide comes in, it will come up to the top of the tube and stick its tentacles out in a little fan and filter out food particles from the water. These worms just build these reefs as, as yes. their habitat. They build them to live in, their yes, house. Yes, absolutely. It's like a sort of high-rise block, isn't it? <laughs> a multi-apartment block here. And some of the shapes are incredibly sculptural. And you can see the area a bit further on from us now where there are lots and lots of mounds. And when you've got a, a rather grey sky and the tide is just coming in and it's very quiet and that kind of satiny grey and you get these strange black shapes everywhere. It's, it's absolutely an alien landscape. And people come down and they think, oh, it's just rocks. And then suddenly they what is this? <laughs> you know? Amazing. 
What sorts of birds do you see when you're out here? Oyster catchers, curlews, uh, lots of gulls, different sorts, obviously. Sometimes red shank, green shank, knot. You see lovely flocks of knot. I love them because it's like binary flashes. You know, they, they, they like starlings swooping around. So one minute it's black and then they turn and it's white and it's black again. But as the tide turns, they're obviously getting busy again, aren't they? And as you said, yes. the tide's turning. Do you think we should start heading back inland again, maybe? If you feel happy, yes. <laughs> I think maybe I do. <laughs> Let's do that. And what do you get from this landscape, Anne? It's hard to say. I just love it in all its forms. I've been down here in blizzards and in rain, and you get hooked on it. And, of course, the Solway is very famous for its sunsets, too. Yeah, and looking at the sun splashing down on that, that line of houses that is Allenby and the Lake District fells behind, if we just peer a bit further round to the west, we can see miles and miles of sand glinting in the sun and the Irish Sea. And underneath that sea is a, a resource that shaped the way that this landscape and the whole community around here developed over hundreds and hundreds of years. And a nice quick clear day, you can see Alaman. The Alaman, oh, yeah. just out there. All we can see is this great big flat blue Soft sea because it's a uh, cracking day, isn't it? It's it an is. absolutely it's beautiful day. I've uh, driven about 30 miles south along the coast to Whitehaven and I'm with Tom Norman and we're walking along the cliffs at what used to be the Hague Colliery. Yes, it did. Where are we walking now? We're walking to Salkham. The first pit ever to go underwater in this country. When are we talking? How long ago was that? Oh, maybe 1700s. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, to it think is. that it in is. the 1700s, men dug underground and out under that, that great blue oh, that, sea that we've got in front of us. Yes, well, that's where the call is, so you go for it. You have to go for it if it's there. Mining's just been enormously important in this part of the world, hasn't it? It and fishing. So what happened down at this, this salt and pit that we're going to? It was a coal mine. And if we could go down, you would see where our coal, later on, got from there, down the cliff, up to the top. Because there's a little archway... And that was drove to go to the shaft on top there to fetch the coal up. Before that, we had to come up the cliffs with it. And how did you do that? Carried it. Carried, carried it, it what, on the backs? Well, that's the only way they could do it. It was a hard life, wasn't it? In them days, <laughs> it was half hard. Especially when kids walked, walked down with it. It wasn't until 1842 that they stopped under tens going underground. And women... Women went underground. Yeah, we're, we're just at the top of uh, the old pit now, aren't we, here? That is salt and pit shaft. And it's a, a little sandstone ruin, really, the, it's a the, the ruin. top of the shaft it's a there. Ruin, but that's where the shaft was. And it went out two kilometres from the shore. Yes, well, that was in the old days. I mean, they were hand-filling, they wouldn't use a machinery. It's a hand-filling. What do you mean by that? Well, pick and shovel. But that's the old salt and pit. And how many pits are there around here? Well, there's a lot that we know of and a lot we don't know of. There was Lady Smith and Croft further along the coast. There's the old Salter. There was Kells Pit and Raven Hill Pit. There's Egg Pit. 
king bit, there was a thread shaft, because egg bit had three shafts, and then there was William bit, and that's the ones that we know about. And the ones that you don't know about, uh, why, why wouldn't you know about them? Is that because they're just because not recorded? Or? They would never be recording, and they were what they call holes in ground, where kids used to dig coal. Them, their mothers or their grandmothers used to use an old mangle, and that's how they used to wind kids up and down pit in a basket. Kids used to go down, dig coal, and as soon as they got on the earth, they used to fetch them up, move all their gear and go somewhere else and dig. And would they sell that coal? Oh, yes, aye. God. That would be a living for them. And did, did everybody around here work down the pits? Well, I would say that was main industry. They employed about 2,500 up there. We employed, when I started, 1,800 there. That's all there was in this town, mining. You worked in that pit, didn't you? Yes, I did. I worked in there. How, how long did you work in the 20 pit? 20 and I enjoyed it. And so did listed men. Why did you enjoy it? The camaraderie. The friendship. That's, it was like one big family. You had your fallouts, but they were resolved next day because you had to go back to work to work with them. How did the whole mining process change over the years? Well, it went from a pick and shovel to machinery. But it was the fancy machines, and it always is the fancy machines that take work away. Because you mine it faster, and the coal gets less and less. The mines were dangerous. Oh, they were dangerous, yes. But the men wanted to work there. And if you want to work there, well, that's it. What did it do to this town when the mine closed? Well, a lot of young lads went away. Went away to work in mines. Not till the factories are out, till mines. Yeah. They maybe said to themselves, well, that's the only thing I know, so I might as well carry on daily. And the coal that came out of these mines, it shaped this, this whole coastline. Well, yes, because there were steel works. You needed the coal they needed for coal. the steel, didn't for you? For steel. What factories needed coal? Because everything in factories would be steam-driven. So they would need coal. 1,800 people were working down that pit when, when you worked there. Yeah. And it closed in 86? August 86, it should that must have been such a such a shock but, for no, the, the town. Most, they started cutting back on men, and there was only about 800 there in 1984. And then they ended up in 167 in 1986. That was coffin when they done away with a lot of men, because 167 wouldn't be worth it. You know, we've got the sea in front of us, just kind of glimmering in the sunlight, and then just up behind us... We've got a bright blue sky, an even brighter blue pit head. We can see the kind of framework of it and the wheels. What do you think of this, this landscape now? Well, it's all right. Uh, yes, it's all right. It'd be better if Wales was gone, like. And the wheels at the pit head, and there was, there was coal, and there were men working. There's no noise. You know, it isn't the same as what it, it was in 84 and 86 and before. You'd be standing there and you would hear pit walking. But now you're ironing out. Well, the Solway Firth stretches all the way from Whitehaven, which is where I've just come from. And uh, we're now probably about 10 miles from Carlisle, and the Firth is really, really narrowed. And we're looking over at Scotland, and it's so close. It feels like we could just walk over there in, in a couple of minutes. In Whitehaven, they've been mining underneath the sea since the 1700s. But here at, at Port Carlisle, 
they've been fishing a traditional type of fishing that two men here are trying to preserve for way longer than that we're we're talking about a type of fishing called half netting when did people first start half netting the norsk vikings first brought half netting to the solway and that was over a thousand years ago now um with mark messenger and also mark graham who both fish in this traditional way and just tell us where we are now mark what can we see well, here you can see the Solway at its best. You've got the, where the River Esk meets the River Eden. And what happens is they're both flown now into the Solway. And here you've got probably two-mile expanse of water between England and Scotland. And the, the Solway is actually classed as the border. Where the deepest part of the water is, is the border. And so it changes daily, to be honest, the border. Mark Graham, who is a fellow half-net fisherman, has just brought down the tackle that you use to catch, what, is it salmon and trout that salmon, you catch? We catch salmon, sea trout and sea bass. We also catch plaice. You get a lot of grey mullet round here as well. Yeah, and the tackle that you use, it looks like, it looks to me like he's just picked up a, a goalpost. <laughs> a goalpost and nets from somebody's football pitch somewhere. It's a huge rectangular frame with net in the middle and you carry this around with you do you, you come do. on let's go and see mark let's go see mark well it's quite heavy it's probably about maybe 40 pounds can be a bit awkward in the wind yeah uh, when the wind catches it but having fished for a few weeks you kind of get used to it and your muscles get used to it and you don't even notice it to be honest why is it called half net half is the old norse word for sea or channel the half actually describes the uh, equipment we use and also the fishery itself, and its origin is Old Norse. Well, we can't go fishing today because it's not in season, is it? But if we were able to, how, how do you fish with one of these things, Mark? The tide's coming towards me, and there's two pockets of net around my body. And as the salmon swim into the net, you feel a little pull of the fish, either when it turns or when it actually hits the net. And then what I do is I lift the net up like that and in lifting the net up, the fish is trapped. I pull the fish towards me and I throw him over the top of the beam. Then he goes into a bag on my back and I have to carry in everything I catch because we often fish, oh, you could be a mile or two miles off here. Can I, can, I, uh, can I get hold of it and see how yeah, heavy this is? Right. That's, going on the other way. That's it. You stand here, one arm over like that. Right. On there. Okay. And that arm on the beam. And that arm on the beam. And then you've got to tip it up. You've got to tip it up. I don't know if I can Head even lift way. it, Mark, Let's, let alone tip it up. And I'm just, I can lift it just, but it's enormous and unwieldy. Blimey. How, how far back do these, these devices go? Well, we think they were introduced by Norse-Irish settlers when Vikings were expelled from Dublin in about the, the year 900 AD. And we think the fishery's been in continuous operation since then. Because it's, it's a tremendous resource and has been for over a thousand years that people could exploit the salmon that were migrating up this estuary. And I imagine they've been used to fuel armies and let local people survive hard times, etc., etc. Now, we're standing on the shore, and obviously it's hard enough for me to even lift this, let alone contemplate walking out into the sea with it and this is what you do you go and stand way out there in the middle of the channel while the tide's moving and uh, wait for these fish it's one of the last wildernesses in the country the Solway Firth and I think half net fishing is probably the best excuse that anybody would have to go and stand out in the middle of that wilderness 
And you're right, it is hard work. Um, in the course of a season, you can lose half a stone. And you eat like a horse and still lose weight because you're obviously walking through deep water, you're carrying a decent weight, and you've also got the elements to contend with as well. And you get very close to uh, all the animals round about. We, we see all the bird life, we see grey seals, we see porpoises. You know, and you get to know the wildlife and you get to enjoy the wilderness. I call it a wilderness. How many people do this kind of fishing nowadays? On the English side of the waters, there's now around about 58 still fishing. Whereas as little ago as, as 20 years ago, you had upward of 200. Uh, so much in decline these days because of the restrictions that have been brought on the fishery. I guess 200 people fishing with, with these huge nets, though, that, that would take a fair few fish. Well, you could, yeah, but... I mean, you've got to remember the area that we fished. We used to we used to fish from well past Broom Point and that, and we used to go all the way down to right into the Eden, past near Rockcliffe. But now that you know, it's been narrowed and narrowed and narrowed down. But you wouldn't get two hundred people all in one place. You would get them spread right along about a ten mile stretch of water. Normally, you know, before we were restricted to any numbers, you would see up to 20, 25. Because there are limitations on how many fish you can catch per, per season Per now. season, yeah tell, yeah. tell me about that. Well, two years ago, there wasn't any restrictions on, on how many fish we could catch. We were limited by the hours that we could fish. We would only fish between 10 in the morning and 10 at night, so you'd only get one tide a day instead of two. They then brought in a quarter system last season, of 10, 10 fish per season. This is the environment This agency. is the environment you, you agency brought I brought quota, in, yeah. yeah, yeah, because the stocks were down on the, on the River Eden. So they brought in a quarter on us to 10 fish. Now, we thought that was drastic, but unfortunately this year they wanted to cut it down again to just three fish a season. Well, that could easily be the demise of, of this this fishing because people can't afford £144 just to catch three fish. Well, it costs you £144 to buy the licence that enables you to to go out there and fish, but you can only keep three of the fish that you catch. That's correct, yeah. We're just peering out here at uh, a construction in the water. It looks like sandstone blocks that have built up and it's all crumbled and collapsed. What, What is that there? Well, Port Carlisle became a port. Before it was built, it was called Fisher's Cross. And they built a a village here in order to put a canal in between Carlisle and uh, Port Carlisle in 1820. And the dock over there was called the Coaling Wharf. And they used to bring in ships full of coal and then transport them at the beginning down a canal, afterwards down a little railway. You can still, in fact, see some of the stumps. There was a a wooden jetty went over to to the dock to transport the coal. So maybe the coal from the west coast that, that I was looking at yep. earlier would have come in here, yep. gone up the canal to Carlisle and fueled the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, because you've got to remember, before they built the canals and the railways, transport was just horse and cart and very poor. And I think the idea was to send people out through poor Carlisle to emigrate to America and then bring goods in. There's, there's just so much history around mm. this landscape. There have been men fishing this Solway Firth with these enormous half nets for, well, more than a thousand years now. Do you think there's a future for it? I would like to hope there is, but it's just the way that the cuts have come into the half net and with restricting the amount of fish that we've caught, with restricting the times that we can fish, with restricting the length of our seasons, it is getting to the point where nobody will, will go fishing because 
It's just not worth it. It's, it's got to the point where if they come now with these last restrictions and say three fish, it, it, it will be the demise of this fishery, yes. And unfortunately now, I can't personally see Afnet and carrying on too far into the future. This is the only place left in the world that does it. And it would be such a tragedy to see another tradition disappear. This is the only place left. And as you can see, from such a beautiful place, I won't be able to go and relax anymore. <laughs> I'll just have the pub to look after and have else to do. You'll be sat here on the shore, yeah, tapping your fingers, won't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah.